previously in impeachment. Here's something I did not expect to be talking about this week. New evidence. A phone call between the president and his ambassador to the EU raised eyebrows. I mean, I I think it's really bad. If, If you think what you've seen already is really bad, this is another piece of it that's really bad. Which meant this week, Democrats and Republicans wanted to hear from Gordon Sondland. I think that's really going to be a turning point for all this talk about, you know, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand witnesses. I mean, he is the closest thing to a firsthand witness that they have. All right, Jim Newell, Dahlia Lithwick, impeachment's over, right? Are we there yet? It's... (laughs) It is, it is amazingly enough, uh, apparently over, at least in, in the Intel committee, I mean, the public phase of it, they're just going to write their report now and, and hand it off to the Judiciary Committee. So it's a little hard to believe. I was just getting into it. <laughs> okay, before we go on, brief summary of where we're at. The House is in the middle of this impeachment inquiry. And when I say middle, middle end, Democrats are trying to prove that the president was urging Ukraine to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden, and that he may have been withholding military aid to make that happen. So how many people testified this week? Can you even remember, Jim? Um, it was it was somewhere between um, four and seven hundred. I think it was nine, though. <laughs> I think nine was the, the final answer. So let's go through the week like step by step. And we'll try to do it pretty quickly because there's so much plot here. But I think in some ways, the week has an arc. Like you started out with these witnesses, a couple of them who were seen as possibly helpful to the president's case. Can we talk a little bit about about why? So this is Volker and Morrison. Yeah, we're talking about Kurt Volker, the former special representative for Ukraine, and Tim Morrison, who worked as a White House advisor on Russia. Yeah, no, I think that they were the Republicans were hoping that they would really bring the fire and um, bolster either the Ukraine theory or the Biden theory or some theory in which uh, this didn't actually happen. And I think Volker was the obvious choice because he's compromised, right? He's an amigo. And I think, you know, the, the, the thought was that he would have to say whatever uh, he could say to get himself uh, out of it. And I don't think either of them really helped. Neither of them sort of put the nail in the coffin. But I think the the overwhelming takeaway from both of their testimony was that they were bolstering the narrative that the whistleblower had told all along. Right. Even when they were not bolstering, they were bolstering. Yeah. I mean, I Volker was, was frustrating his own way because, you know, he would sort of deny there was a quid pro quo or deny certain obvious leaps of logic like that Burisma was code word for Biden's when they were being asked to investigate. But, you know, his testimony just didn't match up with with his conclusions. I mean, it's all there from Volcker. You know, the quid pro quo is there. Like he is the one trying to work this deal there. So even if he says, you know, that it wasn't a quid pro quo or he wasn't engaged in bribery or extortion or whatever word we're using for it, you know, it's it's all laid out. Can you lay that out? Because Volcker was really distancing himself in what he was saying. Like he was saying, don't call me a three amigo. I don't like that. You know, that's not how I think of myself. And he was saying, you know, no quid pro quo. And I didn't know about the link between Burisma and the Bidens. How did he implicate himself despite all that? Volcker talked about how he was trying to thread the needle. He recognized that there was a problem where 
Trump doesn't trust Ukraine because of certain conspiracy th- theories he heard about 2016. But he, as you know, an experienced government official, he just wanted to come in and solve the problem. So if they wanted an investigation into Burisma, which is facially an acceptable thing because it is a company where there were some allegations of corruption, he sort of put himself in the mindset that was, we can just have this investigation of Burisma and it will be acceptable because in my mind, I am not connecting that with Joe Biden and no one else has to. So I think he was implicated in that he was doing the dirty work, which I think he knew was wrong. But as long as he told himself that this wasn't really just an excuse to get dirt on the Bidens, that he was OK. So it was the see no evil, hear no evil defense. Yeah. I mean, then we also had Jennifer Williams and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, and they looked kind of pained. Like, if you, <laughs> if you look at the pictures of them, you could tell that these people didn't necessarily want to be there doing this. Well, I think, you know, they were very different. Vindman, you know, really, I think, was clear that he was kind of, and I say the word performing, and I don't mean it in a pejorative way, but he was, you know, in his full military dress. He, you know, his opening statement and the, you know, last sentence of his opening statement where he talked about his father and, you know, being in a country where he was free to tell the truth. Dad, I'm sitting here today in the U.S. Capitol, talking to our elected professionals, talking to our elected professionals is proof that you made the right decision 40 years ago to leave the Soviet Union and come here to the United States of America in search of a better life for our family. Do not worry. I will be fine for telling the truth. The, the entire thing was a performance of, I am doing this as a patriot. I am not a politician. I never wanted to be in this. Um, I saw something that I thought was wrong. Here I am. Ms. Williams, you are now recognized for your opening statement. Thank you, Chairman Schiff, Ranking Member Nunes, and other members of the committee for the opportunity to provide this statement. You know, her affect was really different. She really did look like she'd been sort of dragged in out of the rain. I appear today pursuant to a subpoena and am prepared to answer your questions to the best of my abilities. But again, I think that that the only person all week who seemed to be having a rollicking good time was Sondland. <laughs> Everyone else looked as though they were there, if not under duress, then at least under some heavy moral obligation that was not why they got into this business. For Vinman, I think it was much more almost the, the desolation of somebody who'd given his life to, you know, a proposition that some things are not political, and it turns out they are. And how crushing that was for him to have to disclose it and talk about it and, you know, under physical threat to his family who now may need to be relocated to a military base. So I think that the overwhelming feeling I got from the both of them was just sadness, that I am sad. This is not how I wanted to be spending my career. Is that true, that he may be re- relocated to a military base? Well, that was uh, that was the rumor day of, uh, that, there, that there was the threats against him and his family were so acute that they were investigating whether that had to happen. And I think that was never confirmed. Am I right, huh. Jim? I'm not sure. I mean, his whole future at the National Security Council is a big question because um, obviously that's going to be a very difficult work environment for him. And, you know, he... I, you know, it should be up to him to make the choice whether he wants to stay there or not. But it, it's going to be, I don't know, curious to see what, where he goes next. So, Dahlia, you highlighted the testimony of Gordon Sondland. This was Wednesday. He's the ambassador to the EU. 
he really did put on a show and his statement it kind of shook everything up when it came out, his opening statement. Jim, what did you think? Well, I, I guess the statement first leaked maybe about half an hour uh, before he was going to come out. So everyone, you know, there was this this tension coming into the hearing where no one quite knew what he was going to say. And the White House was very nervous. Like, is he going to, since we're positioning ourselves to throw him under the bus, you know, as though he's this rogue actor who was just freelancing all of this, is he going to throw us under the bus? And once we first saw those you know, excerpts, it was very clear that he was, you know, (laughs) he recognized that he was being positioned to be the fall guy. And so what he did was give a great big bear hug to everyone else in the command chain, everyone he interacted with to say the famous quote now from his testimony is everyone was in the loop. I briefed Ulrich this afternoon on this, referring to State Department Counselor Ulrich Brechtbull. Again, everyone's in the loop. Everyone knew what we were doing to solve this Ukraine situation where there's this hold and President Trump's just general antipathy towards Ukraine, and no one was stopping me. He brought emails, too, and he kept saying, well, I could have more, but the White House won't let me share them. And those emails were with people like Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo. I mean, as you said, really just a bear hug to anyone he touched in that administration saying, if you're saying that the stink's on me, actually, it's on you. And like sort of touching them. He was like giving them cooties almost. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I could tell reading his testimony what Republicans were going to do, though. You know, he he said there was a quid pro quo for a White House meeting in exchange for the investigations. And then he says it's a presumption that the military aid was also linked into that. So we knew, you know, when he amended his testimony the week before that this is what Republicans were going to latch onto, and they did. You really have no testimony today that ties President Trump to a scheme to withhold aid from Ukraine in exchange for these investigations. Other than my own presumption. Which is nothing. I mean, that's what And I so I think for some people that took a little a little bit of the wind out of the sails in terms of thinking that this was going to change everything and we'd have a, you know, 435 to zero vote to impeach. (laughs) So he was a little, he was playing both sides a little bit. You know, I think he understood that he couldn't say that he knew he was going after the Bidens, you know, in trying to get this investigation from the Ukrainians because that would be, uh, you know, that's the crux of why all of this is wrong right now. So while he didn't deny most of the details in that, call he was overheard in with the president in Kiev on July 26th. He did deny ever saying anything about the Bidens. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say it was interesting in that Sondland, I, I found him very discordant compared to everyone else because, like, this is just, like, a super rich guy who, like, could have built himself a really expensive, you know, pool house and instead bought himself, like, a junket in Ukraine, like, complete with, you know, lunch with wine, uh, as it turns <laughs> out. And he, you know, you had this feeling that he was the perfect figure to be at the center of this because you have this perfectly transactional president who just thinks, like, I want stuff. I'm rich. Give me stuff. I did a deal. Like, that's how he thinks. of. And so there's no, nothing wrong because, you know, in Sondland's telling, you know, he's a businessman. And in order to get what, you know, what Trump wanted, he had to secure a promise before. Like, that makes perfect sense in transactional business land. So there's this way in which he's just this consummate, almost cartoonish, transactional figure who whose defense is essentially 
dude, you know, if I was this is the way I was going to get it done. I was doing the right thing, wanted to get aid to Ukraine. I did it. I was all in on this transaction because like transactions are what make the world go round. So I think that there was a way in which everyone else was a career, you know, somebody who'd spent decades learning the craft. And he was just a guy who, you know, if it hadn't been buying himself an embassy in Brussels, he would have just been hunting like lions on the Serengeti. Like he just, you know, this is just how he rolls. I mean, it It was stunning to me to watch him just play both sides of the fence, you know, kind of be cornered a little bit. Like when when the phone call came up, this phone call in a restaurant between him and President Trump. And there was this exchange where someone asked him, you know, said, you know, President Zelensky loves your ass. And he's like, yep, sounds like something I would say. You know, it was this funny moment where you could hear him. He wasn't ashamed at all. He was just like, yes, that's how I deal with the president. And it it felt revealing to me, both in terms of who he was, kind of acting two different ways based on the audience, and then also in terms of who the president was and how you have to deal when you deal with him. But doesn't that also just signal to you? I mean, to me, you know, everybody was asking, like, why— was Volcker dealing with him? Why was anybody dealing with with Sondland or Giuliani? And that's the answer, because he had access. And they kept saying that. I couldn't get to the president. This guy had him on speed dial. This guy would dial him from a restaurant in Ukraine, and he would get through. And this is the answer, right? Donald Trump cut out the entire world of, you know, professionals who have skills and knowledge and briefing books and protocols and put in place a bunch of folks who had access to Donald Trump. And at that point, it almost doesn't sound implausible for for Volcker to say, like, you do what you have to do because this guy had access. Because if you can't get to him and talk to him and change his mind, you can't get this aid to Ukraine. And so in a sense, it was kind of this like this is, again, how powerful white rich businessmen do deals. Which really brings us to yesterday, to Thursday, where Fiona Hill and David Holmes stepped forward. And these were people who felt cut out, as you were talking about, Dahlia, very clearly They were there to say, listen, we were the kind of people who should be in the room when you're talking about Ukraine. David Holmes is this guy who works at the embassy in Kyiv, and he overheard that phone call in the restaurant between Gordon Sondland and President Trump. Fiona Hill used to work in the White House. She resigned in the midst of all this back and forth over Ukraine. David Holmes literally told this story about going with Gordon Sondland to a meeting with a top Ukrainian aide and being left out in the hallway and told, you don't you don't need to come in. It was to me, that was a story where I was like, wow, this is everything. This is the whole thing. You are just left in the hallway here. I thought the best representation of that was Fiona Hill, who did that, whatever the British equivalent is of, like, bless your heart, you know, that, like, where she sort of said, and suddenly I realized that it all made sense. After Sondland testified, I realized there were two tracks. That was by design. We were being cut out. There was a back channel. I, there, You know, like, she sort of made it sound as though, thank you, Gordon Sondland, for clarifying that there was a front office and then there was the real deal, and I just didn't know it. Nobody told me. And she made it sound as though she was profoundly grateful for that truth-telling, but I think it was also very bless your heart. (laughs) It's a way of sort of very, very, very deftly saying the system worked as it was designed to work. It was designed to do this 
plot and to cut us out of this plot. And I just thought, for me, that was one of the most transcendent moments where she just said the plot worked perfectly because they cut us all out. And the point is we have a robust interagency process uh, that deals with Ukraine. It includes Mr. Holmes. It includes Ambassador Taylor as the charge in Ukraine. It includes a whole load of other people. But it struck me one yesterday when you put up on the screen Ambassador Sondland's emails and who was on these emails. And he said, these are the people who need to know that he was absolutely right because he was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy. And those two things had just diverged. So he Yeah, was- I mean, that whole moment, that answer was completely transfixing. I mean, one, it, it had that, that bless your heart element. The way she just said, we were doing Ukraine policy. He was on a domestic political errand, which I thought was just such a perfect way of encapsulating the whole thing. And I, I, she was just so impressive in the way she would think these things through. And she was very, to me, I feel like we could do a whole show on Fiona Hill because she really cut through. She also had a moment where she said, yeah, I got really angry at Gordon Sondland because I thought this guy's freelancing. And people mistook it as me being kind of emotional, but I was pissed. And as a woman, I was like, yeah, (laughs) I've been there. I hate to say it, but often when women show anger, it's not fully appreciated. It's often, you know, pushed onto emotional issues, uh, perhaps, or deflected um, onto um, other people. So I was upset with him that he wasn't fully telling us about all of the meetings that he was having. It was so fun to watch her completely dispassionate, totally professional affect layered over what was clearly a really complicated emotional and moral life that was happening inside. And I kept thinking, you know, because Jim Jordan, I think, I mean, again, I I defer to Jim, but he might have been his shoutiest ever (laughs) on Thursday. And he's a shouty, like his baseline shouty is like 40. Uh, So he was up to 112. And she, it was so interesting to see her talking about how people who are deemed not credible when they're emotional, talking about herself. And here's Jim Jordan, like, on fire (laughs) across the dais. I mean, you're right. The gender valence is unmistakable, you know, that women are not credible because she had the temerity to be angry uh, at Sondland uh, over, you know, this back channel. But I thought it was so interesting that the more they tried to rattle her, the more tranquil she got. She was so sort of modeling. I mean, part of it was the British accent, for sure. I was going to say, like, I feel like we're all trained to just, like, snap to attention when you hear a British accent. Which is funny. That was was funny, too, just because the the way she described it is she had a lower-class British accent, you know, that would have hurt her career possibilities in in the United Kingdom. But over here, you know, she's risen up through the meritocracy. And she, you know... But I don't think she understood that we in the United States don't actually know the difference between lower class and upper class British accents. So thought that her accent was incredibly fancy and authoritative. It took her saying that for me to realize, like, oh, you sound like the scullery maids in Downton Abbey. I get it. But like... I I didn't process it until she literally told me that. It it was so posh. But also, again, I think that she, you know, it was interesting to watch Republicans stop questioning her altogether. They they just went from, you know, the first four or five sessions went so badly and you'd like draw back a bloody stump and you didn't actually know what had happened to you. And so then they just started shouting at her. And at some point uh, she said to Adam Schiff, can I can I respond to any of like the last three people who have just, you know, who have made attacks on me? 
Could I actually say something? Because we've had three... Um, Doctor, I was going to yeah. ask you if you'd like to respond. There have been a number... Jim, can I ask you about one more moment with Fiona Hill and David Holmes? Because I was re-watching it this morning. It was when Will Hurd sort of got his chance to speak. And he's retiring, and he's the only black Republican in Congress. He, he should be fairly free to say what he wants to say. But what stood out to me was he was very sober and very serious. He wasn't doing the Jim Jordan, Devin Nunes thing, but he was defending the president. And it really made me realize, like, we may not get very far here in terms of changing minds. Yeah. When they would get to Will Hurd, I was always listening very closely because he is seen as someone who is gettable. You know, he's a former CIA operative. He's you know, has a very serious reputation. He's from a swing district, although he's retiring now. So theoretically, he should be loosened up to sort of uh, act on his conscience. And I think by the time it got to him in the Fiona Hill testimony, this was after she had already owned so many of them that they stopped asking her questions. And they sort of just went to their their closing statements of the of this public phase of the hearing. And Will Hurd's was, yes, I disagree with the bungling foreign policy. He thinks there's a lot of inappropriateness here, but he did not see enough evidence of extortion or bribery, he said, to to merit impeachment. And I think that that sort of shows you how far you're going to get with breaking Republicans so long as you have Donald Trump kept at one remove from what a lot of these actors were doing, at least in terms of what, you know, has been presented firsthand. I think that just as long as that excuse is intact, which they're going to find a way to keep that excuse intact until you have a Mulvaney or Giuliani or a uh, Pompeo, you know, basically playing recordings of their conversations with the president, you're not going to get any Republicans to move. So, I mean, that's why even though we saw such a week of very damning and comprehensive testimony, um, you know, we're still not anywhere in terms of, of moving the politics on this. More about this week in impeachment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The thing about all this testimony this week is that I couldn't help but feel like it seemed rushed. It made me wonder if Democrats were just trying to rip off the Band-Aid here get this impeachment thing over with, especially after a couple of polls showed that support for impeachment seemed to be stalling. So I asked Jim, what's going on here? Do Democrats feel like they can't move the needle of public opinion any further? I don't know if it's that they feel they can't move the needle entirely. I think they're just making the decision that they might be able to move the needle if they get Giuliani, Bolton, Pompeo, Mulvaney to testify and to testify, you know, not just lawyered up, nothing saying, but they also realize that you'd have to go through the course of that. And that would take another year or so. And the longer that goes on, you're going to lose the public's interest, the patience. 
and it, you might it might not actually work out for you. Can I ask you a question, though? I mean, do they have to give up on bringing Mulvaney and Giuliani in? I mean, there's been this court case rumbling through the system where they've been fighting to get access to Don McGahn, the former White House lawyer. We've talked about it before. The judge in that case says, I'm going to have a decision by Monday. Congress has said we want to use this case to sort of thwap the White House over the head and get more people in here. So why aren't we? I mean, it seems like every witness this week basically laid it at Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo, Giuliani's feet. They should be in there. Including Sondland, right? I mean, the one thing, the gift that Sondland did give was you should probably talk to Pompeo. Like, you need to talk to Mick Mulvaney. I mean, there was no question where he was going with that. And he, as you said, was very plain in his saying, I would have much better notes if I could have access to the stuff that they wouldn't give me. So he was on that issue. He was, I think, unequivocal. But the fact is that even if Judge Jackson, you know, rules that Don McGahn and, and Kupperman and Bolton have to testify, it will go up to the D.C. Circuit and then it will go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will decide that question in 2021. And so that's the the problem is that I think Schiff and Pelosi made the decision that we are not going to wait for this to play out for a year and a half in the courts, we are going to, you know, draw the inference that they are obstructing. We will make it an article of impeachment in its own right. That was one of the articles of impeachment against Nixon, right, ignoring legislative subpoenas. But we're not going to try to fight this out because we don't have time. Jim, where does that leave us here? I mean, Congress, everyone's catching a flight out of town. You got a turkey to roast. What's what's happening next here? Well, I think the plan is for the Intelligence Committee to um, they've already started drafting a report, apparently, and they're going to finish that theoretically over the Thanksgiving break. Then they submit that to the Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction technically over impeachment, and they would compile that into specific articles of impeachment, hold some number of hearings, um, and then they would vote on those articles and then send them to the House floor. So I think it is I think it is probably on track to get to the House floor. Uh, by Christmas, which was their original timeline. Hmm. And then it heads to the Senate. Dahlia, I know part of what you talked about in your podcast this week was what happens when it does go to the Senate. What did you learn? Uh, it's it's shocking, but true that in terms of the constitutional delineation, there's almost no guidance. So all we know is that the Constitution provides that uh, this will be presided over by Chief Justice John Roberts, that all the rules will be set by the Senate. And that means Mitch McConnell will be setting the rules. And John Roberts, I think, to be clear, has no formal authority. I think this is Mitch McConnell's show. So I assume this is going to be a Merrick Garland type of, you know, process where everything is done to try to make it quick and a foregone conclusion. And I do think it goes to Jim's point, which is for people who were hoping that there would be some off-ramp for the, the Mitt Romneys, you know, the people who have said, even Lindsey Graham, right, if I ever find out that there was a quid pro quo, I would think differently. Is there some off-ramp for them to come together the way, you know, after Watergate we saw um, House Republicans saying, OK, well, the facts are the facts. I think that this is being crafted to have no off-ramp possibilities. 
It's funny you say John Roberts like won't have any power because when Clinton was impeached, the quote from Rehnquist was, I've never played more solitaire in my life, I think, than that trial because you're not doing much. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that to the extent that people think that John Roberts has some rulemaking or process-making role to play. Uh, He has very little. And I also found out taping the podcast that even if he issues a ruling uh, that the Senate majority doesn't like, they can actually vote to override (laughs) substantive decisions he makes. So, you know, the power is not in his hands. That This is not a judicial check uh, that he has. This is a trial in the Senate run by the Senate. And so, you know, the Constitution didn't say, oh, by the way, in this impeachment inquiry in the House and in the trial in the Senate, there have to be facts. Uh, I think that, you know, this could get just chalupa'd all the way, (laughs) all the way to the end. (laughs) Chalupa'd. Chalupa'd. All right, Dahlia, Jim, thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. Jim Newell is our senior politics writer here at Slate. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts. Quick programming note here. We started this week in impeachment as a little bit of an experiment. And now that the House impeachment hearings are winding down, we're going to wind down the weekly updates, too. At least for now. As news in Washington heats up again, count on us to be back in your feed whenever you need it. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mara Silvers, Daniel Hewitt, Jason DeLeon, and Mary Wilson. I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back here on Monday. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.